After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to Ram Das here and now, and I'm Raghu Marcus again, back another week, and uh, I'm, I'm tell a, a little story here before we get going. This story is definitely part of this talk, or is uh, connected to this talk that Ram Das gave, actually, uh, in 1982 in Denver. Uh, so. Here's a, what happened to me. I, uh, many of you may have uh, received a newsletter, our spring love serve remember ramdas.org newsletter. And uh, if you haven't, take a look in your inbox. Ramdas uh, has a, a beautiful uh, small piece around love serve remember and what that means to us and to everybody, which is. Maharaji's teachings, a basic core teaching that was, was handed to us. So uh, also connected to that, uh, we uh, in 1973, Ramdas and myself and, and uh, my uh, ex-wife Parvati Marcus and Rameshwar Das and Paul Gorman and uh, a couple other people got together in New York City at Barbara Hoffman's, thank you, Barbara, for that, her apartment. And it was during the Watergate trials. So we were, we were kind of glued to the TV looking at this spectacular procession of witnesses related to what went on with, uh, with Nixon back then. And, of course, everybody knows the outcome and knows that story. And it was uh, an impeached president uh, in the end. So I was just trying to give context to this beautiful 6LP record set in a box uh, with wonderful, beautiful liner notes. It was uh, Ramdas uh, taking calls at WBAI in New York, amazing questions. And again, this is Maharaji was still in his body then, and this was us in the summer putting this together. In fact, we even there's a picture you'll see in the newsletter of Maharaji looking at the cover of the record, which was a picture of a Yodja uh, city in India, Hanuman, and uh, it's kind of a very special uh, Hanuman, and um, and there's music and Ramdas reading from the uh, Ramayana and uh, uh, Krishna's uh, chanting and. Uh, Bhagavandas chanting and Jai Utah and Amazing Grace. It's just quite a pastiche, potpourri, shall we say, uh, of, of uh, content. And uh, it's never, we've never made it available. It's been available in spots that you can find parts of it here and there on the net. But we digitized it and uh, made it, uh, um, I mean, it sounds pretty good, even though it's uh, quite a long time ago. Um Anyhow, the point here is that in my little contextualization of, uh, of the time that we produced this album, these albums, LPs, I said something about we were watching uh, Nikki, Nixon, Nikki, <laughs> Nixon up to his tricky political stuff, something like that. And I got a letter back, very well written, um, 
taking me a little bit to task over uh, making a judgment uh, and um, in a way that furthers the us and them that uh, actually David Silver and I on our Mind Rolling podcast, some of you may know, talk about a lot because of the polarization that's so extreme in this country uh, now. And uh, so I... uh, I fully admit that I get polarized, and I mentioned that in a note back to her, and uh, and then found this lecture, uh, this talk. And in the talk, Ramdas um, refers to a friendship that he had with Daniel Ellsberg, you know, which happened around uh, the break-in and all of that story, which happened around the time of Nixon, and he uh, it was very much a lead story back then. And apparently, uh, Daniel Ellsberg was 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 uh, part of very much part of uh, government in the '60s, um, and and knew a lot about all of the nuclear uh, power stuff, and he knew submarines that were you know aiming nuclear warheads at the biggest cities in Russia, and uh, and I didn't know this that you know a bomb dropped over Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, and, 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 and five of the six fail-safes did not work, okay? That's how close North Carolina, where I live, got uh, to uh, being wiped out. Um, so he knew a lot about uh, just the extent at which uh, the government uh, was going uh, in order to uh, protect, quote-unquote, us from the Russian threat. And... And he would talk to Ramdas in in really fearful terms, talking about annihilation that would take place and so on. I mean, the horror—it was really the horror. And Ramdas would say, "You know, scare tactics like that to put uh, to force us into social action is really not the way to go around it." And he so he talks a lot about. Um, this exact same situation, which was brought up to me, which I discuss or we discuss plenty on these other podcasts. So we talk a lot about the us and themness uh, on these other podcasts that, that we do. And, uh, and here it's brought into clear focus by, uh, by Ramdas in this relationship that he had with Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, and, and at one point he says, I hear the human mind proliferates paranoia and exquisite exquisite technology and how those two things are on a course that seems very high risk it seems that the human intellect is out of balance with the deeper part of our being and that's in response to this kind of fear tactic that uh, daniel ellsberg was trying to get on with ramdas to engender him to take action in that way um, so, and he, you know, he said, in, in fact, uh, the nukes and all this other weapon, weaponry are out of balance with the way of things, the Tao. You don't have to cajole or coerce people into acting. You don't milk the fear. You can trust people's gut. You just have to, f- to, uh, feel, uh, I just have to tell or share people how it is and they naturally... Uh, respond in in ways that are going to contribute in social action uh, to to healing, basically, and and uh, again, our intellects are out of tune with the deeper rhythms of life and death and change, and uh, this just brought it all uh, into focus for me because we, as I said, we we talk about this so much, and how do we act in ways we ha- you can't just sit by and say nothing. And at the same time, where are you coming from when you do take action? And how do you uh, not get polarized into hate and anger and so on and so forth? Um, So uh, this is a great discussion uh, around uh, this this subject of of social action. And, And he also... Is there something else about that I wanted to talk about? Um, 
Yeah, it, it's, it's just a little quote from him, again, regarding this. It's the freedom of consciousness that hears the impeccable act that brings about the healing of the planet and all its people, so that you are an instrument for the relief of suffering, even though, and this is, the, this is really what I, I wanted to point out, and you'll hear him in the talk, even though at another level you can see that suffering, which is part of the nature of things, the suffering that is part of the nature of things, and you're acting to relieve it, they are both part of one mosaic. I think that's a, a super important um, awareness that we, we definitely need to, to keep in mind. Uh, so I, I love this talk because it became real. I mean, it's connected with something that happened to me by virtue of this little thing that I had written in the uh, in the newsletter, and and perhaps was a little bit too cavalier. Is that the word <laughs> about uh, what I said about Nixon? Although nobody can defend uh, Nixon's actions uh, at that time, and uh, but. Uh, to put him out of our hearts. And uh, Maharaji used to tell us, you can be angry at somebody, but never throw them out of your heart. And how to live that way is is where we, we all, I believe, I need to move to, I think we all need to move to, to heal the polarization that's taking place. So, uh, by the way, go to ramdas.org and you can get that LP set Love, serve, remember. It's a real collector's item. And by the way, we have it. Ramdas had this priced in 1973 at 450. Okay, he did not want to make any kind of big profit. In fact, there was hardly any profit. Just giving some of the musicians, I think, some money at the time. And so we have priced it at, I believe, it's 495, something like that. uh, just keeping it in the spirit, uh, and uh, you're talking about six LPs. I don't know how many. It's a few. It's a number of hours, maybe five hours or something, four or five hours. So it's a lot. You get a lot for your 450. And uh, again, really, it's all about whatever you can contribute to help support the work that we've been doing and hope to continue to do with. Ramdas and all of our other friends that uh, take part in the uh, teachings of the heart. And here we go. Ramdas, here and now, from Denver, 1982. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Stop for a moment and think about something that you really need to get off your chest. It could be frustration with your job or a coworker. It could be fear or uncertainty about the future. It could be a secret that you've been hiding for years. We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Speaking with a therapist on a regular basis is also a great way to improve your communication skills. Learn to resolve conflict. Increase your self-awareness and self-esteem. Develop positive coping strategies. Build stronger relationships and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, plus switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ramdas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ramdas. This past year, I had a long dialogue, and it ended up as a television show. It's still half-cooked, but with Dan Ellsberg. And Dan was discussing all the issues about nuclear, the horrendous facts. And he discussed fact after fact after fact, like Helen Caldicott does. And Dan knows all the facts. I mean, the most horrendous facts. 
I mean, really bad facts. Yeah. Because he was like in 1961, he was the, other than the president and the secretary of the state, he was the highest civilian that was involved in preparing the war plans for the United States. And he suddenly realized that every president since Truman has used threat of first strike as a political power card. And he told me about how many warheads each of our submarines has aimed at every city over 100,000 population in Russia and with a redundancy of having 20 submarines, each of which can wipe out every city. And he told me about the bomber that fell, dropped a bomb by era over Greensboro, North Carolina. One of those bombs that's 10 times what Hiroshima was. They used the Hiroshima bomb as a trigger for this other bomb. I mean, it's big business now. And he told me how when that bomb fell, five of the six fail-safe mechanisms failed. And if one other failed, that would be the end of North Carolina for like 24,000 years. Just little facts, you know, just, just sort of. And you, I'm sure, know these facts and many more like them. And I sat with him in a, many evenings just hearing all this information. And the deception, the way in which the government really doesn't want the people to know. Well, we don't want to be conscious that we've shifted our policy in the middle of the Second World War before the bombs, when we were bombing Hamburg and places like that. We shifted from going to a just war concept where you kill people who are trying to kill you to just mass slaughter of other people that disagree with you. We bought Hitler's model in the middle of the Second World War. And when he told me all these things and we sat together, I listened to them all. And he kept being disturbed, disturbed because I wasn't having the reaction he wanted me to have. Because he was screaming, as Helen Caldicott does, fear, urgency. Because that's what Channel 2 screams. Because as long as you're identified with a form, with separateness, the possibility of annihilation. And Dan says, you realize that if anybody starts a nuclear war of any kind, the escalation would lead to at least 600 million to a billion people massacred, including whoever started it, in order to be right. I mean, there aren't even words like massacre. Nothing applies to that. I mean, Auschwitz is tinker toys. And I said to him, Dan, um, I can hear everything you're telling me. And I hear the way the human mind proliferates paranoia and exquisite technology and how these two things are on some kind of a course that seems very high risk. And it feels like the human intellect is out of balance with the deeper parts of our being. And I think that, uh, and he says, that isn't the right tone, he felt. that I wasn't, let's get out and poster. And he felt that unless I, he wanted me to join the club, and he felt that unless I was frightened or felt urgency, I wouldn't join the club. I said to him, Dan, I think you're underestimating the game. If, in fact, the nuclear weaponry is out of balance with the, the way of things, with the Tao, you can trust people's gut. You can just tell people how it is. You don't have to cajole or coerce through romanticism 
You don't have to milk it through fear. You just share it with people. And you watch. This thing will happen from a deeper place, an intuitive place in people. He says, I don't trust that. I said, well, Dan, that's because you're in your mind so much. Because you don't trust your own intuitive sense. I said, you're living in the world of ought and should, which is where the intellect works, because it's out of tune with the deeper rhythms of life and death and change. As the American Indian, my friends all in the American Indians say, come on, all you people, come on back to, they touch the earth and the heart, come on back to where it is. Connect, reconnect. Reconnect. But if you're too much in your head, you don't have any connections. And so what you're doing is you're deciding, you're thinking about it and saying, I ought to do this, I should do this. And I had heard somebody say to me, and I repeated it to Dan, I said, Dan, I'm tired of being should upon. <laughs> you're just going to have to trust me, Dan. I mean, even if you can't trust your own intuition, you're going to have to trust mine. And every time I meet Dan at an anti-nuclear rally, he always looks surprised. Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> but I want to describe a moment I had on June 12th in New York City. There were about 750,000 to a million of us. And I, we were told to be at the spot where we were going to be in the parade one of the street cul-de-sacs that we chose to be there at quarter past nine in the morning to march past the United Nations and up into Central Park. And we were there. And the street was blocked off on First Avenue, so you'd go out second and on to the parade. And so the street kept filling up and filling up. By around 9.30, it was so full that you couldn't move. You couldn't dance. You couldn't go around saying hello to people. You just had the space you were standing on. Right here was a dentist from New Jersey. Here was a nun from Dubuque. There was a minister from the Riverside Church here. There was an old hippie from California who'd thumbed out across the country. And there were numerous others. I won't bother about describing who we were standing right there. We stood there from 9.15. The parade didn't move on our spot until 1.20. And you know, nobody got angry. There's no violence. Everybody waited. And when you looked at the faces, you felt that you were part of something that was coming from an intuitive rightness in people. It was an action that was coming that they felt privileged to be there. They weren't going to get angry. In the whole day of a march, the biggest march in New York history, and a parade and a concert with Jackson Brown, a lot of other people in Central Park, there was not one arrest. That's pretty far out. Now, What I experienced from Alan Watts's point and from Emmanuel's point, that now that I had figured out how to recognize and remember who I am about God, about the emptiness of the one, then I saw that freedom was going to come through being in the world, but not of the world. I was going to come back into form not come back. I was going to be in form, but not be in form. But that doesn't mean, you know, that kind of, like I, I decided one of the things I'm going to do to honor my incarnation is 
love my, my, I mean, honor my father. He's my father. My mother died, but my father is alive and he's aging. And what I'll do is I'll honor my father. So I started to do this many years ago, honor my incarnation. Well, my incarnation is that I'm a man, a Jew, my father, I'm, I'm my parents' child, I'm part of a re an ecosystem, I'm part of a nation, I'm part of a species, etc., etc. And I was going to listen. See, part of all this stuff about my anti-nuclear activities these days is coming out of honoring my part as a member of an ecosystem and my part as a nation, a nation, as a member of a nation, which is a big ego. So many years ago, I thought I'm going to start, this, I've been going on this for a long time, honoring my incarnation, well, I'll honor my father. Now, what happens with us in the West is we sort of see where we're going. See, you get that sense of honor incarnation, and then your intellect immediately takes over and says, well, what does it mean to honor the incarnation? Well, I'm going to love my father. So I go home, hi, Dad, I've come to love you, you know, and <laughs> what do you want to do? So he says, let's play Yahtzee and watch the Red Sox. Okay, Dad, anything you say. See, what you see is a long-suffering phony in me. See, I was busy thinking my way through this. I'm going to love my father. We're going to play Yahtzee if it kills me. And he knew a phony a mile away, but he was just very compassionate. Because uh, yeah, the minute he'd go to bed, I mean, he'd sit there in my bedroom, which was the television room, with the windows don't open because it's a high rise, smoking his cigar, playing Yahtzee, the ball game on loud. <laughs> See, and I would be just having a wonderful time. And the minute he'd go out, I'd and read my holy books, grab Ramakrishna, you know, to get a quick hit to save me. Because I was still afraid of being in the world for fear I might like Yahtzee. I might actually care what happens to the Red Sox. I mean, that would be really terrible. I'd lose all the advantage I'd gotten all these years. Hmm. But then you see that if you're afraid of losing it, you don't gut it anyway, so forget it. See, and you begin to start to trust. That's what faith is. You begin to accept the fact that you really do exist in all these channels and that you're going to be free through really diving into a human birth. And I, a few weeks ago, my father was moving from a, his apartment to a house, and he's 85, and I really wanted to help out, so I planned my touring so that I was around to pack boxes and arrange moving and stuff with my stepmother. And I found myself for about three days packing stuff out of back closets that I would move to back closets that he didn't even know he had. Well, it's interesting, when I walk into his apartment, you walk in the door and Ramdas doesn't exist. Hi, Rich. Yeah. So Rich was packing boxes. And I wasn't doing it in a long-suffering way. I was just doing it because, of course, Dad's old. He needs help. Sure, I'll pack boxes. Just like you do it. Yeah. Not begrudging it, not grabbing at it, but just doing it. Doing it, but not doing it. The proverb says, he does nothing and nothing is left undone. Or another one says, there's nothing to do, so get on with it. <laughs> now, there's not the coldness of the abstract thing of, he's a father, I'm a son, therefore I should pack boxes. And when I came home, they were moving, and they were really caught in moving. Oh, God, moving. Jesus, what a drag, Rich. <sighs> I came home moving. Wow, this is going to be a gas. Wow, we're going to wonder how they're going to do this. And you think they'll get this into the elevator? And wow, the new house is going to be, whoa, we'll do this and this. And they said, Rich, it's great having you around. Sure. Why not? It's great being around them, too. 
We turned the whole thing into a delight. It was a, it's just, we moved. I mean, moving is as interesting as anything else in life. If we move, then we can settle. <laughs> then life can go on like it was before. Right? See, as long as you have attachments of mind, you see how you suffer? You're always driving to work. Damn traffic. I never get to work. Never get home. I used to be, I'm on tour all the time. I mean, last week I was in, um, where was I? <laughs> Springfield, Missouri, Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, Houston, Texas. Last night I was in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Tomorrow I go to Aspen. Next week I go to Hawaii. I just go on and on and on. And about and a few years ago, several years ago, I was in a motel in Kansas, a Ramada Inn. Plastic land. And I was thinking, you know, just a few more weeks and I can go home. And then I thought, gee whiz, what a way to suffer. You know? If this isn't home, forget it. I just expanded until the earth is my home. Walk into the Ramada Inn, hey, I'm home. <laughs> it's different. I mean, I'm so relaxed touring now. This is what I do every night. I just hang out in the living room with all of us talking about stuff. First to awaken, then to be free, to be free to fulfill the forms impeccably. What else have we got to do? When people say, well, what's going to happen? I mean, Ramdas, from where you're standing, is it getting worse? <laughs> is it Armageddon? Or is it the Aquarian Age? I used to listen to Walter Cronkite of the news. He's retired now, but he used to say at the end of his news broadcast, and that's the way it is today. And I used to believe him, you know? I mean, I really thought he saw reality. And then I saw he just saw one scenario. That's if you're looking at it from Walter Cronkite's place. And that each person is seeing a different universe depending on their own attachments of mind. The truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. When you desire something, you see only the outward container. I mean, if three of us, example, three of us driving through a village we'd have been in before, one of us, you, you, we just ate a little while ago, but you're hungry again, but you don't want to admit it. Hey, that must have, it's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. Some of you. Must be somebody else oral in this culture. So the other end of the village, if, you, if I ask you, what was that village like? You'd say, well, there was a McDonald's. There was a health food store. And if we're in my car, which is probably an old car, since I like old cars, I go from tow truck to tow truck. We get to the other side of the town, and you say, what was in that town? I say, well, there was a Shell station. There was a foreign car motors down a little street, I think, I saw down there. And if the third one in our group is horny, you ask, what was in the town? They say, it was, did you see who was standing under the clock by the bank? We each went through a different town. Now, this is old psychological saws. But that's where scenarios are at. And you begin to realize, after enough people ask me, what's the scenario? And I would be wise. I thought, I don't know what the hell the scenario is. All I know is, when I come right down to it, that what I have to do at this moment is quiet my mind so I can hear clearly what the incarnation's all about and how to fulfill it. What this moment is, open my heart 
wider, deepen my compassion, in other words, which is that balance of head and heart. And my actions do what I do to relieve suffering. That's what I end up doing. This is it. If the world's going to end in a minute or a million years or whoever knows, all I got to do is quiet my mind, open my heart, and do what I can to relieve suffering. It's very simple. Now, from channel four, which is where Emmanuel and I talk, I understand that I chose what I am experiencing intentionally. And that the earth is an interesting plane for certain kind of work. It's not the only plane that we exist on or that we incarnate on, including bugs and grass and all that. That's still this plane. And uh, E.T., e still this plane. I mean, Emmanuel's on another plane. He just doesn't happen to have a body. He's not on channel one. But he's as real as you are. See, that's very upsetting to people. Mat philosophical materialists, you understand. Especially if you think, well, it may not all be the left brain. Some of it's the right brain. That explains everything. And then you imagine just shooting somebody's brains out, and they're still here. Hi. How can you be here? I shot your brains out. The brains are eaten by worms, and here we still are. Emmanuel's brains were eaten by worms. Emmanuel, your brains have been eaten by worms. What are you doing? Being somebody. <laughs> I mean, it's just possible that awareness is more interesting than, the, than a phys set of physiological uh, components. It's hard for philosophical materialists to die. I really believe it is. They really suffer a lot because they think this is the end. Then they're so surprised. <laughs> a moment later, I must have died. I guess I didn't die. I'm still here. No, you died. I mean, what you have to do when you're with a philosophical materialist that dies is assure them they've died because they don't really know it. You know, they assume they're still alive. So I've taken an incarnation and I have to hear, how do I, what does it mean to manifest? Not with my intellect, I've got to grok my way into it. And when I'm fully in the world, fully human, when I'm fully with my sex and my loneliness and my depression and my joy and my hope, and all my humanity, you know what humans have in common? We have a lot of things in common, but Buddha pointed out a number of interesting ones, like the five hindrances. Then he's got the 10 fetters and the 28 no-nos, and he's got lots of lists, but... <laughs> I'm a student of the Vasudhi Magga, so you learn all those, 52 and 60. I won't show off. We'll just do the five. The first five hindrances. First one is lust and greed. That's one. That isn't even two. See, so you can't say... <laughs> No, no, you can't say, well, I got one of those, but not the other. No, no, they one. <laughs> then as long as you're separate, you're frightened, so there's hatred and ill will. There's a closing of the heart towards other things. Hatred and ill will is two. Agitation of mind, monkey mind. <laughs> Grabbing, looking. <laughs> Chinese curse, may you be born in a fascinating time. Channel, f the number four, hindrance four, our old friends Sloth and Torpor. You know Sloth and Torpor? <laughs> so we got lust and greed, hatred and ill will, agitation, sloth and torpor, and doubt is the fifth one. Now imagine you were setting up an intentional community. Who will we have in it? Well, let's have people with lust and greed, hatred and ill will, agitation, don't forget sloth and torpor and doubt. What would you expect? I mean, isn't this fine? This is it. Yeah. We're going to make this into heaven and earth. 
There is a heaven. This is earth. Couldn't you for just a moment look at yourself, even one second, and stop all this original sin nonsense and just say, I created it. It's fine. From a soul's point of view, you're part of the one, you're part of God, and you're a creative force. And what are you going to create with? Why don't you turn away, away from the light and thus creating a shadow, like in Plato's cave, and play with the shadow created. It's called karma. It's called life. It's called earth. It's called forms. The world of forms. We'll play in the world of forms. wasn't an error. This isn't an error. To even allow yourself to feel that at this moment, ooh, this is so hard to do because your human heart just almost screams in outrage, that at this moment you are in absolutely the perfect place. Perfect state of mind, perfect achievements, perfect economic political, social, world, ecological predicament. It's all perfect. Now, I don't ask that you buy only that, but could you at least allow a 5% space for it? All the rest, you can think it stinks. Compassion is the balance of this and this, the balance of seeing the perfection and also the human pain. It's like saying no to people. It's like very hard to say no to people without closing your heart down. Because like saying no to a kid. You know, the kid wants something. And you say no because you think it's not good for the kid. And you empathetically, with your heart, you feel the pain of that kid not getting what he wants, what she or he wants. So that's part of the pain. And then you also know that if you are the one that is the frustrator of that kid's desires, the kid's probably going to turn some of that anger towards you. Frustration leads to aggression. So when you say no, you expect you're going to feel the pain of not getting what you want and you're also going to feel the pain of somebody you love turning against you or, or, or being angry at you. So what you do when you say no from your human heart is you close your heart down a little bit and you become what is known as a conditional lover. And you're not only saying no to somebody, you're sort of saying, get away from me. Because you can't say no without being a little cold to protect yourself. The minute you can also have this other part of your space where you're meeting the other being behind the drama, whether they're there or not, no matter where they're caught, that's their karmic predicament, but as long as you're spacious enough, then you can see that in this situation I have to say no, and there is the empathy, and there's all those feelings, and still you can do it without closing your heart. Like, I work with all those things that close my heart down. Like, I have to deal with Casper Weinberger. He closes my heart down, for example. See? Yet, see, now, Casper Weinberger, Casper, you are a soul, just like me. And you have incarnated in order to awaken, just like me. And you're caught in the darkness, just like me. And can I say no to you and disagree with you and protest against you and even throw myself down in front of you and get arrested? Can I do all that and keep my heart open to you as a fellow soul? Because if I can do that, then my acts, like Gandhi's acts, are healing rather than divisive. After Gandhi was instrumental in throwing out the British Empire, the British people respected Gandhi and loved him immensely. Bizarre. Bizarre. I walk into airports every other day and there are these people in these booths that say, nuke Jane Fonda and stuff like that. You know, you, are you for nuclear energy? You know? And I used to get furious when I'd see them. Like the Hare Krishnas with wigs on, I'd walk up and say, why don't you take off your wig, you know, or something like that. 
I mean, my fury would rise at the hypocrisy and the con and the, and the opposition. And there, my sadhana. That's my work. These are fellow souls. Can I disagree? Can I walk up and say, hi, we disagree about these issues. Let's talk about it. Let's, I'd like to hear what your positions are. I'm just learning. This is really new territory for me. Because first you want to hang out with the people that keep you high. Later you want to get free. And anything that brings you down is the only thing that brings you down are the attachments of your own mind. And finally, you want to be in the world, but not of the world. Be fully involved and yet not so that the mind doesn't grab and cling to any models. So the change is aso, 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 aso. The aso image is the monk who's... The girl in the village gets pregnant by the fisherman and she doesn't want to admit it's the fisherman so she said it was the monk up in the monastery. The baby's born and the people, the townspeople take torches and they go up to the monastery and they knock on the gate. The monk comes, opens the door and they say, this is your baby, you raise it. Ah, so. Takes the baby, closes the gate. Nine years later, the woman is dying and she doesn't want to die without confessing it was the fisherman. People realize they made a terrible mistake. They go up to the monastery, knock on the gate. Monastery doors open. There's the monk with his nine-year-old little boy. They say, we made a terrible mistake. It's not your child. We'll take over the raising of the child. Ah, so. He says, see, hold on tightly, let go lightly. And you want to practice? You want to practice being free because it's the freedom of consciousness that hears the impeccable act that brings about the healing of the planet, of all the people, of all of it, so that you are an instrument for the relief of suffering, even though at another level you can see that suffering is perfect. What's perfect is the suffering and your act to relieve the suffering. It's all part of one mosaic, one warp and woof. And your human heart is still there with its pain. I work with dying people. And I used to say, well, I've gone into these spaces where I see I don't die. So I'm not afraid of dying. And somebody said, I think you're a liar. And I looked and it was true. That there's part of me that's human, that's separate, that's afraid of dying. And there's part of me that is one, that is divine, that is spacious, that is not afraid of dying. So my truth is that I am afraid and I am not afraid. That's what I offer another human being as they're dying. My humanity, my truth. Instead of a stance, I'm not afraid of dying. What you offer other human beings is your truth. And that compassion is the balance of head and heart, of emptiness and form, of perfect and imperfect, of nothing to do, so do it, of suffering and no suffering, and grace, because you see that suffering is grace from up here. I watch people with egos as thick as cement blocks, dying of cancer slowly through a lot of pain, and I watch that pain, which I wouldn't wish on them at all. And I will alleviate it if I can. And nevertheless, I must say that very often through that pain, I watch a surrender and a surrender and a surrender until suddenly I am with beings of living spirit. And their spirit has, their soul is present in this very birth. And I would have predicted there wasn't a chance of a snowball in hell that that soul would have, would have gotten any air at all in that birth because the attachment they had to who they thought they were. So what do you do? Do you say, oh, the suffering's good for you? Can't do that. But you sure you want to take away all the suffering? I mean, when you look at your own childhood, as I do at mine, I was a very unhappy child in a lot of my life. I was very, very miserable as a, a pubescent and adolescent. A lot of sexual anxiety, a real mess. 
And at the time, I thought, oh, why am I cursed? I'm cursed. I'm cursed. I'm not like other people. It's horrible. Now I look back and I say, you know, that stuff isolated me. It threw me in on myself. You know, that was probably, if it weren't for that, I might not have done this. And a lot of us can do that about then. Yeah, that suffering was good, but this suffering... When can you get to that space in your consciousness where you can say, sure, I wouldn't choose it, but here it is. I'll work with it. The thing I was going to suggest to you before you want to practice, try that little, those little phrases. One to me is loss and gain. See, can you stand in that place in your being where you can look at losses you've had and gains? And I come out to my car, my radio's been ripped off. There's loss. You've. There's 50 letters in the mailbox from the circle of gold. Ah, gain. I love playing at the edge. Loss and gain. There's loss, there's gain. Can you feel the same way towards both of them? At the same moment, go through the trying to work for gain and work to avoid loss, and then take what comes? How about fame and shame? One to me is fame and shame. I got thrown out of Harvard. That's shame. You're bad. Drugs. Lying. Thrown out of Harvard. My parents said Shiva. I mean, it's like really bad. You're... Here, here, it's a no-no. I thought, this is shame. I was thrown out of the APA, the American Psychological Association, in 1964, I think, for working with Tim Leary. And two years ago, I gave an invited address there. <laughs> See, is it fame or shame? If you live long enough, you know, what goes around comes around. It's in this People magazine world, who knows? Is Ehrlichman famous or shameful? I mean, is, you know, who's what anymore? <laughs> the Today Show enjoys having Nixon on. Fame and shame. One to me is fame and shame. Doesn't mean you can't discriminate the difference. You're not out in la-la land. <laughs> but you're not caught. Okay, you ready for the heavy one? One to me is pleasure and pain. Sure, you work for pleasure and then you take what comes. And if it's pain, ah, oh, pain. Pain! Sometimes it's just a little thread of consciousness because the pain grabs you so much. And you're so afraid that it's going to grab you totally and you're going to lose it that the fear is part of what keeps grabbing you. And then finally you just sit with the pain and you say, yup, pain, and here I am. And you begin to see that there is space, even in the midst of pain. And if you want to push it, one to me is life and death. Precious human birth, hold on to it. Yet his death, when it comes, also. New moment. New moment, new moment. Now I don't have a body. New moment, also. New moment. If we don't underestimate ourselves, if we don't keep capturing ourselves with our mind, with our intellects in channels one and two, if we can start to allow the spaciousness of our being and start to tune to the intuitive part of our being, it's far out. When I was in the 50s at Harvard, we were so cynical and chauvinistic. Rational mind is the s highest thing, and men are rational. Yeah. Women intuit. Intuit was like a dirty word, intuition. Isn't it funny? Turns out our salvation is intuition. And it's coming at the same time when we're finally 
acknowledging and women are finally demanding and there's finally space. For those other qualities of our society to come forth. We stultify the society so much by so narrowly having our myths. Like what we do with aging people. Well, you can't shoot buffalo anymore. Off to St. Petersburg with you. Um, senior Citizensville. Well, it's interesting. It's changing. It's changing. And the changes are far out because there's these political realignments. Do you know that by the year 2000, a quarter of the population will be over 65? And by the year 2040, 50% of the population will be over 65? Like every bustle is going to have a lower step. You know, it's all going to be retirement city because they've got the power. And older people are going to demand respect because they're going to start to respect themselves. And then we are going to come back into the extended family harmony which has a society in which there is wisdom as well as knowledge. Because at the moment we're putting our wisdom out to pasture because we are so enamored of Henry Kissinger, you know, and knowledge. Knowledge isn't the same as wisdom. The intellect is always a thought away. Growing old is one of the greatest lessons, greatest arts of the, in living, is how to grow old. I mean, it, it's funny, when you grow old, you know, when you, when you go to meditation courses, they say, all right, draw your awareness to your breath. Now, let your eyes, don't notice what your eyes are seeing. Let them go. Let your ears hearing, let that go. You don't move around. You stay in one place. See, so that you can extricate your awareness from being caught in each of your senses, and you can let your awareness connect to the other parts of your being. What happens when you get old? You lose your sight, <laughs> you lose your hearing, you can't walk around so much. I mean, it's absolutely optimum for meditating. <laughs> Isn't it bizarre? I mean, have you ever seen a more perfectly designed game? It's, everybody's bitching all the time. You can't remember as much. Great. Finally getting rid of your personal history. All your old friends are dying. Wonderful. Now you're free to be who you are instead of who they all think you are. We are all living in these conspiracies. I'll make believe you are who you think you are if you make believe I am who I think I am. Don't change because that'll scare me. You've always been Doris the way I've known you. This is a great um, poem by Jenny Joseph. It's a warning. She says, When I am old, I shall wear purple with a red hat which doesn't go and doesn't suit me. And I shall spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals and say, We've no money for butter. I shall sit down on the pavement when I'm tired gobble up samples in shops, <laughs> press alarm bells, run my stick along the public railings, and make up for the sobriety of my youth. I shall go out in my slippers in the rain, pick the flowers in other people's gardens, and learn to spit. You can wear terrible shirts and grow more fat and eat three pounds of sausages at a go or only bread and pickle for a week and hoard pens and pencils and beer mats and things in boxes. 
Ah, but now we must have clothes that keep us dry and pay the rent and not swear in the street and set a good example for the children. We must have friends to dinner and read the papers. But maybe I ought to practice a little now so people who know me are not too shocked and surprised when suddenly I'm old and start to wear purple. Not a nice poem. Um, This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What do you need to get off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, develop positive coping skills, and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ramdas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ramdas.